Angus Young, how you doing? Good, Becca. The offspring. How's it going, Becca? Dave Grohl, how you going, mate? Good, man. Pete, it's been a long time coming. Oh, Becca, hasn't it indeed? We go inside the dressing room, speak to the biggest names in music. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. And crack open their esky. That's exactly how I imagined you, by the way, sitting opposite me with a vodka and orange. You're a discerning chap. This is the rider. Well, that makes it official, doesn't it? <laughs> there we go. This is episode one of The Rider. Uh, after being on the radio for so many years around the country, 12 years in Sydney, uh, interviewing so many great and talented people over the years, uh, this is my first podcast. And so many people have said to me in the last 12 months, particularly the last six, they've said, look, do a podcast. Everyone else is doing it. You can do it from anywhere. You can be traveling overseas and you can still record it on your laptop. And, and I was thinking, oh, I haven't got time for that. Who has time to make a podcast? But finally, uh, it is happening. This is uh, The Rider. Welcome to it. Uh, this is Becco, and um, thanks for tuning in and thanks for uh, subscribing to it. Uh, we're on Instagram as well. Uh, Pod is where you can find us. And week by week, we'll be talking to some amazing people uh, with the Rider podcast. Um, we'll be talking to musicians, but obviously people behind the scenes too. You've got so many interesting people who are managing bands. They're on tour. They're dealing with all the dramas of uh, the road. And of course, it all comes back to one thing. What's in the Rider? What have you got in your contract? What are you demanding when you're doing these concerts? Uh, what's in the Esky backstage? And uh, we hear so many stories about extravagance. And then we hear other stories about... You know, it's just a six-pack of beer and maybe a fresh towel. Uh, so uh, we've already got a lot of people locked in, and um, I thank those, especially a lot of mates of mine who have um, already put their hand up and said, yep, lock me in. This is Ep 1 of The Rider. We have got an absolute Aussie music legend coming on the first Ep. Uh, these days, he's playing country, but you would know him as the songwriter for In Excess over the years. Uh, he was pivotal to so many songs you knew. He wrote Never Tear Us Apart. He wrote Devil Inside. He wrote New Sensation, By My Side, Heaven Sent, Beautiful Girl, Johnson's Aeroplane, which is one of my favorites, um, to look at you. And of course, co-wrote so many with Michael Hutchins. And it felt kind of appropriate to catch up with him uh, on this particular ep because uh, it is the 30th anniversary of Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live, depending on how you pronounced it, but one of the biggest concerts in the world at Wembley Stadium. It was sold out. It was a festival. It was a movie, a soundtrack, an album, um, and In Excess just killed it at that particular gig. And also this week, uh, it is the anniversary of the loss of Michael Hutchins as well, and we'll obviously talk about Michael. He's been a part of so many great rock and roll moments uh, with In Excess. These days, though, has gone for a simpler life, living in the country. So he's somewhere now half an hour out of Tamworth. And to give you an idea how uh, remote he is, we've had three attempts to do this interview and the first two times we had to postpone it because the weather wasn't right because the internet was down. So I think uh, luckily this particular time it is all good to go. Uh, we have Andrew Farris from NXS on Zoom from his farm. Let's get to him. Is that you, Andrew Farris? Hey. It's just so good to good see your you. face. And um, Andrew Farris, how are you? Yeah, I'm awesome, Becco. How are you going, mate? Mate, doing well. It's so good to have you on the podcast, The Rider. Now, I've got to start off every podcast with asking you what is in your rider. You've been touring 
with your band all the way through uh, for the last couple of years. You had a bit of a break with COVID, but what what is the the one thing you ask for in the writer? Um, mostly, uh, you know, believe it or not, sort of you know water and things to wet the whistle for myself and other members of the band that are playing with me at the moment. Uh, but also, we have a bit of beer and wine after the show and whatever, not too much and. Depends how much far we've got to travel and what our responsibilities are. And if I've got meet and greets or media and all that kind of stuff, all comes into play. But, um, you know, generally speaking, we're a pretty healthy rider. You know, in the old days, uh, you know, just for example, within excess, Kirk and I, we used to wait till the, the lights went down on stage. And then he had his Marshall stack and we used to, because um, I played keyboards kind of next to his guitar amp. And we had a bottle of triple sec and a bottle of tequila and, a, and a, um, a blender and a bucket of ice. And we used to try and make margaritas. You know, I was good friends with Chris Murphy and we would talk about, um, you know, the humble beginnings, but also the the absolute, you know, top of your game. And, you know, even just the live baby live set up for the cameras and, and all the, the, the things that happened for that. We'll talk about that in a little bit, actually, about live baby live, because I know it's the anniversary, uh, I think, this, this week or last week. How you been, by the way? Has it been a frustrating time? The EP out, then the album was meant to come out last year and we got a bit of a taste. Must have been a tough one for you. Yes and no. I mean, I think uh, it was a, definitely a, a confusing time, uh, both for me and as an individual, but I, I would put that broadly across as Australians, but also around the world. I mean, back in February or March of 2020, I had very different plans, you know, um, that didn't involve being locked up at home, you know, hiding from people um you know i had very very different sort of plans um and i think i'm not alone it, it was kind of a disaster for most of those industries because by virtue of the word social distancing is a complete nightmare because your whole role and your job and your task is to be as social as possible with people you know? i was lucky enough to go to one of your or a couple of your shows um with your band and i don't know how you put together such an amazing lineup but uh you, you're pretty blessed thanks mate um yeah i sure am i, I agree with that and uh I, I hope some of the the band that can hear me say this but i think i've got one of the hottest bands in australia if not the world and i i have to say having had a little bit of experience of being in a really big band i, I know exactly that it, it's not only the skill sets of the individual musicians it's also the kind of people they are um and they're really good people. Um, I like spending time with them. And that's a very, very important element that goes with it. Um, you know, you, you got to know when to laugh at yourself. And it's all good. You know, um, I mean, I think, but the talent group of people, are, people like Laurie Minson is a, is a Tamworth local, kind of like I am. Uh, yeah, Laurie's got Golden Guitar Awards as a country music legend, uh, you know. His father, actually, uh, John uh, Minson, in invented the Golden Guitar Award. I don't know if many people know that. Um, wow. And to have Laurie on board with me, uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He plays banjo, you know, uh, harmonica, uh, slide guitar, uh, you know, guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, uh, harmonica. He's an absolute sort of incredibly talented guy, multi-instrumentalist and sings. Yeah, I have, I'm really, really blessed to have the musicians playing with me and, and um you know, I, I try to look after them and they look after me. Did anyone pull you aside when you were saying you're going to go down this this route and, and say, you're mad? How could you go country? How could you do that? You're, you're in a rock band. You're one of the greatest <laughs> songwriters of all time. I mean, Chris Murphy was going that angle with uh, some of his artists uh, before he passed away. He, he saw a future in country music. But did some people actually say, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> 
Yes and no. All I've done is be embraced by the actual country music community. And I thank all those people and the radio people and all the support people because they didn't have to, you know. They could have said, look, go away. You've had your time, son. Uh, you know, uh, off you go, you know, on your bike. But they didn't. They've been really, you know, embracing and, and from all around Australia. And I think that was one of the really frustrating things with COVID was when the borders were shutting all the time as I had to stop touring uh, with this band and, and take it out, you know, fully around Australia, which I, I was starting to do. But that aside, uh, I did have someone say to me when I said, you know, I'm, I'm embarking on a country music career. <laughs> and they said, well, that's brave. I remember them mm. saying that. <laughs> um, but um, but I, that's probably more to do with my, 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 my vintage rather than, I don't know. But I feel maybe, I don't know. I think probably what's interesting about you saying that is I think people have perceptions of people uh, in the entertainment industry and they think, well, this, this artist, this girl or this guy, you know, they, they belong in this little box. So we'll put them over there, you know, and we'll play, they play that kind of music and they're that kind of person. But ultimately, you know, you've got other ideas or things to explore or things that get you excited. I follow those dreams, you know. I, I don't really follow people judging me. I follow the dream that, that, that I have in front of me. I've been to a few, um, you know, country shows in, in, in Sydney and, and Tamworth too. And one thing I worked out is the country fans in 2021 are people who would have been rock fans, say, back in the 80s. So in a way, it sort of feels like you're moving with the, the trends. Um, uh, and they weren't a different crowd. I can tell you that much. They're, they're a rock crowd. I would let you say that before I would say that. But I do tend to agree with you. And for me, what, you know, one of the big game changers was that, you know, starting really from the late 80s and 90s, and I know because I used to do it too, was I used to work a lot with, you know, synthesizers and, and computer programs and drum machines and loops and samples and all this technology that's now 35, 40 years old. Um, I was using it back then in the day and experimenting. And in the day, in those years, it was sort of cutting edge. And then when the DJs and, and remixer people got involved, uh, you know, that exploded and the dance community sort of exploded. And then I think all of that culture, you know, was kind of taken a while, but it has now become involved in country music. And I find it really intriguing because, you see, I'm coming at it from a very different angle. Uh, I was already using a lot of that technology so many years ago. So for me, as I'm coming into country music, I'm coming in reverse engineering it all. I'm actually going backwards in time and I'm discovering what the old school instruments like mandolins and banjos and, and a fiddle being a violin and, you know, working with instruments I, I never really used to work with within excess like pedal steel, you know, and, uh, and all these sorts of instruments to, and banjos or whatever. That has been a really interesting experience because I know how to use the modern technologies that exist. I'm very aware of all that. Congrats on that, by the way. I forgot about the, the the song with Dua Lipa. You did pretty well out of that one. A billion sales is not bad. You know? <laughs> it's insane. Um, yeah, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I think I, I was the first uh, recipient in, in Australia to get a billion sales award for a song that I participated in as a songwriter. But I think I was the first legacy act guy. To get, to get one of those, you know, the, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So they, they, they can drive the stake in next to me as, as a one billion guy and then the legacy guy or something next. I, you know, I feel really privileged. And I, to me, it's interesting that you should mention that too, 
because, you know, Need You Tonight, which is a song that, you know, uh, Dua Lipa and the other writers kind of embraced to use the Dua Lipa song was very much, uh, I worked on that as a songwriter, very much with technologies and the same way they reshaped it now. That's kind of what I was talking about before. Look, when you go through that list, you go, you know, Need You Tonight, Never Tear Us Apart, uh, What You Need, By My Side, you know, Beautiful Girl, Johnson's Aeroplane. I mean, what is the one you're most proud of? I have to say, for me, you know, one of the big sort of game changers for me as an Australian in many ways was, was obviously all the accolades and awards by, you know, and fans appreciating in excess in the old days where, you know, so much of Australia really embraced in excess in the old days. And uh, just want to thank everybody. It's, you know, and it's always been in my heart, but I think what really hit home to me was when David Kosh or Koshy shared a video of Port Adelaide football team, the footy anthem of Never Tear Us Apart, a stadium full of people singing that song. What it meant to me suddenly, well, I got a little bit emotional while I was watching that because I thought, well, you know, that's got nothing to do with pop music, really. It's got even not that much to do with record sales or fame or anything. What it's got to do with is the NXS guys and myself and myself as a songwriter and Michael, we've gone into Australian culture. We've been accepted into Australian culture. Um, and that song has embedded itself in people's hearts and minds. And that was that was pretty full on for me because so many people rank their career to do with, with chart success or money or fame or something, but I don't see it like that anymore. I stumbled onto... Um a video of you and Michael in the studio doing a demo of it and writing it together. And you guys seem to be a great combo for writing a song together. Have you seen that video to remind yourself? Definitely. I think it's mystified that you're talking about. We were sitting there working on that and and we'd we'd, we'd been working on that not that long before that in Chicago, the two of us uh, in a studio there. I like Chicago, by the way. It's a great, great city. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it was a really good experience. One of the things that, that was very interesting about my songwriting relationship with Michael was the two of us must have written over 300 songs. Um, and some of them became very famous. Some of them, you know, a bit obscure or whatever. Uh, there's a couple that have possibly never been released. Um, but what I will say is that we were very kind of different people Um you know, we work differently, uh, how we both contributed to songwriting. And I think that was the secret of our success. You know, we both came at it from quite different angles a lot of the time. And I think it's that joining forces thing that was quite powerful with our songwriting. And I don't even think we both thought about it that much until later on in the band's career. I think for most of it, we just, we, you know, we didn't socialise much outside of work. I know that sounds funny. But I didn't see him much. You know, we were either working on stage or in the studio or, or songwriting. But outside of that, he had his own social life, family life, and so did I. And so when we got together, it was very professional, you know. Um, and I think that really helped is that we weren't competitive, you know. He never played a musical instrument, for example. Uh, his voice and his lyrics were his instruments. Whereas I'm a multi-instrumentalist and I write lyrics and I sing. But we weren't competitive, you know. Um like that and i think that helped a lot too yeah watching a video you were using uh, the piano i think to 
demystify. Um, did you find it easy to use a piano or a guitar when demoing a song? I've always worked both ways, uh, Becco, where I, mm. I, I either work on a guitar or uh, keyboards, you know, um, or with, with, with drum machines and samples. Where, but in, in the old days, songs like New Sensation and Devil Inside, Need You Tonight, uh, you know, Original Sin, all, What You Need, all those sort of guitar riffs, I wrote by myself at home. And then when we took them in and rehearsed them, either Tim or Kirk would, would, would play the riffs. And I was very, very fortunate to have such great musicians in a band like In Excess. And those guys were such good musicians that they go, okay, we get it, you know, within the first hearing of the song. And then we'd walk out on stage and they'd be able to play it. And not all bands can do that. I'm sure there were times when it was difficult. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, we're probably thinking about the same era, you know, it must have been tough, but... 75 million albums, you know, a plus. That's not easy. That's true. And, I, you know, look, all I can tell you is, and I'll try to keep this brief, uh, is that I remember one of the first tours that NXS did in the United States around about 1983, and we'd had out Don't Change and The One Thing went top 40 in America, which is very exciting, and other countries, obviously, including Australia. And, in fact, with Don't Change, Bruce Springsteen, just, for example, covered it when he came out to Australia. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, Limp Biscuit, I think, have a version out as a, as, a, as a single. But I think what I'm trying to say is I was out on tour and I didn't really understand what doing international touring was going to mean at first. And in the first two tours that we did in America were like three months each. So we're virtually away from home for six months, you know, living out of a suitcase. Uh, you'd, 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 you'd be traveling and see the same people every day for six months and working. And you never got to go home, you know? You wouldn't yeah. sleep in your own bed. I think as much as I would say to you that it's hard work, I'd also say, and I think this is the truth, that what separated a lot of bands wasn't how talented they were when we all came out of the, out of the gate as a horse race. When all the bands started, when we did, to go overseas, I think a lot of it is how much those people could handle being away from friends and family for large amounts of time. And especially when there wasn't much money in it when you came home. For most of those people, and you, who'd blame them? They'd say, you know what? It's not so much as too hard. It's like, why am I doing this? When there's no, there's no guaranteed result at the end of it. You know, like you don't know necessarily you're gonna make any money or you're gonna be famous or you're gonna get on the radio. You don't know. You just go out there and do it. And for those people that, that keep doing it, and that's what we knew, noticed, that there were bands like at the same time we started, like U2 and The Cure and, and, and those international acts that kept touring and kept going back and back and back and back again. And that we began to realise that is our competition, is to keep doing it, you know. that It's almost like a personal commitment that you make and you either want to do it or you can't do it. It's one or the other. 30 years ago, you played Wembley Stadium, which to me feels like NXS's um, benchmark of where you would want NXS at, you know, filling out Wembley Stadium, um, producing an incredible live album, an incredible movie. Um, it was shot perfectly. The crowd were, were just going off 30 years ago. I've got quite vivid memories of that night, mainly because what probably a lot of people don't really know or understand is that Wembley Stadium was just, one show out of quite a lot of shows we did that big in a row. And uh, we played a bigger show uh, at Rock and Rio 
in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And our support bands were Billy Idol, Santana and Joe Cocker. And I'm a big fan of all of those artists. And I remember standing on stage and there was 150,000 people in that stadium. And I remember looking at Carlos Santana was watching me play guitar. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? I'm like, whoa, you know, like, you know, I used to listen to this guy and I was a huge fan of his, you know, same with Joe Cocker, you know, when I was a teenager, I'm like, man, these guys are great. And suddenly they're staring at you on stage. You know, it's that kind of stuff that was going on. Same, we played Texas Stadium too. And our support bands were Guns N' Roses, uh, Ziggy Marley, Bob Marley's son, and um, uh, Iggy Pop. That era for us was pretty spooky in as much as you had to be damn good. Yeah, it's epic. And look, even your supports for that Wembley gig, uh, was it was it Debbie Harry and um, maybe Jesus Jones, I yeah. think, from memory? Yeah, Jesus Jones. Uh, I think Hot House Flowers were there as well. And there was a few acts there. But Jesus Jones were great. Um, as was Deborah Harry. Um, I've always been a huge fan of, of, of Deborah's and Blondie. Uh, what a band, my God. Mm. Um, you know, incredible musicians. And Clem, the drummer from Blondie, he's got to be one of the greatest drummers of all time. There's one question I've been dying to ask the whole time I've known you. And um, I was in the car and it reminded me because I, I put on the best of Elegantly Wasted came on. I've, I've turned it right up and listened very closely. And I've always wanted to know, are you saying... Better than Oasis in the background. Is that true? All I can tell you is when I was working on these songs and writing them with Michael, we were in Dublin and uh, he, Michael used to live in a little village called Roquefort-le-Pont in land of Nice near Grasse in the south of France. And he, you know, he had friends like Johnny Depp and, and he went out with supermodels and he was mates with Bono and Edge and all those people. And I was raising a little family at the time in England. And we lived very different lives. But when I went over there to Dublin, we were kind of a neutral area. That's where the U2 guys were living. And so they invited us to go down to the studio and we talked to them and they asked us what we thought of the songs. And we said, yeah, it sounds good, you know, great. And um, after that, I went back to the studio to keep working uh, with Michael on, on the songs we'd been working on for Elegantly Wasted. And he started saying, look, you know, I'm really into this vocal. Uh, but I'm feeling kind of, you know, like I just want to do this by myself. And so you might as well just go home for the night or go down to the pub and have a Guinness or something, you know, the local pub. And I thought, that sounds good. <laughs> so, um, you know, I left him alone and gave him some space, said, sure, man, that's what you want to do. So I went back to the, the pub or whatever I did. He stayed on. Well, I didn't know till about six months after that, I'm sitting in a radio station in Canada, in Vancouver, I think it was. And the DJ had a vinyl spinner of Elegantly Wasted. And she puts the vinyl on and says to me, can you tell me what he's singing in this chorus? <laughs> and I sat there and I went, now I wonder what he was doing when I was at the pub. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, at the British Music Awards, I think um, one of the uh, Gallagher brothers from Oasis, you know, had given Michael a really unnecessarily hard time I said something that was just mean and unnecessary to Michael maybe he was just jealous of Michael I think more than anything Uh, because Michael was a big rock star you know he wasn't copying anyone Um, you know I'll give you an example I can remember again the first time we went to Los Angeles on that first tour we did and we played rock and roll tonight in Los Angeles 
and the other axon were Eric Clapton and Simple Minds. And I can remember after we came off stage, we played really well, by the way. We played great. And, and it went out you know, live on television. The next minute, Ray Manzarek from The Doors is standing at the dressing room in front of me saying, is your singer here? And I said, yeah, right. He's uh, over there in the corner, you know. And he said, would he, would he mind if I said hello? I said, no, he'd love that. Come on in. So he came in and I, I overheard him say, look, I, you know, I, I, I never, ever do this with any other act, but I was sitting at home and I saw you guys come on television. I love your band, but man, when I saw you, I got spooked because you remind me of Jim. I heard him say that. And then, and then I kind of weird, you know? That is so interesting. You know? Cause but, it's true. Cause people sort of do compare Jim to Michael so much, you know, Ray from the doors, obviously, uh, would have seen Michael come up on TV or, or seen him on stage and, and he would have seen it. That's, that's incredible. But that, that happened a lot, you know, and, and that's what I mean is I, I think, you know, with the elegantly wasted thing and, you know, and all that, I think just Michael was going through a really hard time in his life. You know, I know the way he used to handle himself. Michael wasn't afraid of people and he could really, you know, deal with people on his own two feet, you know? Um, and he was a big guy too. He's pretty tall, Michael. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but all I'm saying is that I think he was at a very, a very difficult crossroads in his life around about that time when we were making that album. And I was very conscious of it. And I felt like very much the two of us had really done a full circle in our friendship where I think for a lot of the In Excess's career, we had a very professional relationship. We didn't see each other much. But towards the end of his life, really, I began to see a person he even, he even said to all of us guys in the band once towards the end, I feel safe with you guys. Yeah. It must've been really hard. That last tour, there was a lot of anticipation, I think internally within the band. And you must've felt really positive about it going into it. You, you must've thought, oh, you know what? We've, we've had some tough times, but this could be the start of something. You mentioned Chris Murphy before. And I, I, I miss both Chris and Michael as people. It's really... You know, they were both sort of in their own way, quite powerful, enigmatic people um, and, and very clever and, and intellectually, you know, gifted people um, and, and, you know, brilliant in their own ways. You know, I can always remember Chris and I talking after Michael passed away, you know, about what would have happened if he'd lived on. And I, I think you're right. I think someone in America said to me not that long ago that, a lot of bands, especially bands that have had been really big the first time around, often they, what they get, they get a second time around. And suddenly people, the fans of that group of people or whatever they were, they often have a really big time again coming back around. But I think the difference with us was a lead singer is a very different thing. You know, I can't imagine you 2 without Bono or the Rolling Stones without Mick Jagger, you know, or, or even... You know, and so for a lot of bands that try to to replace those sort of enigmatic front people, it's very hard. After you lost Michael, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, oh, you, you know, you would, you would have had so many reminders. And um, how did you get away from that? Um, I think for me, you know, uh, personally, there was, you know, a professional aspect to it. Um, you know, Michael and I were professional songwriters. Uh, you know, we were in a, a very, very big international act together so there was business levels to it then there was a personal level where we were school friends originally and you know I won't deny that it was a, a really 
tumultuous sort of experience, not just for me, but obviously for his family and the rest of the guys in excess and his friends and everybody else. It was a really tough time. But I think also I have my own family. Um, the guys in excess have their families and their, their wives and their children. And I, all I can say is I saw what they went through, like I went through. And, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't fully understand what that was like for the rest of us is that, you know, we, we carried on. It wasn't necessarily all about Michael. It was also, also all about us as we mm. wanted to keep playing and performing because it was enjoyable to play and perform. And in a way it's quite healthy and cathartic because you had a, you had a chance to go out there and play to audiences who loved the band's music and they understood that Michael was no longer there, but they'd come along to see you anyway. And that sort of respect level, you know, was appreciated by everybody. I think when we were doing it, I think towards later on though, I think, uh, you know, I think we realized that, um, probably for the band's future legacy, it was probably a good time when we did to just leave the road for a while. We never said we wouldn't do it again, but I think it was healthy for us to just stop playing. Um, you know, and now I can see my, <laughs> my brothers at Christmas like brothers and I can do other things that, you know, are a bit more normal um, with, with the other guys in the band or you can see each other at dinner and, you know, you're not on stage all the time yeah, or in yeah. hotel rooms and things. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How often do you pick up the phone and talk to Tim or John? Because um, I, I, I saw the three of you at um, at Chris Murphy's wake and and got to sort of speak to you separately. And do you, do you talk much, or are you, is it like a normal brothers thing? You you might pick up the phone every every month or so. We do stay in contact more generally, um, which sounds a bit impersonal, like sort of. Uh, texts and emails and they're, they're not unfriendly they're just you know casual things but also i don't live anywhere near them either or my sister i should add our, our younger sister allison I, I don't live anywhere near my brothers or my sister um but when i can see them and we get an opportunity to yeah i really look forward to it i was just thinking it, it must be sort of weird uh, in a way being the front man do you have any front man syndrome uh, are you wearing leather pants <laughs> uh not yet but I, I will mate now you've mentioned it i, I want to go out and get a pair something like open-breasted with leather or something or with a hairy <laughs> chest you know something like that yeah. I don't really worry about it now. At first I did. I was terrified um, of, of standing up and being a lead singer. And also because I think I'd gotten so used to the idea of, of like our first, you know, when I was saying to you earlier that I think people categorise musicians, especially musicians or, or, or people who haven't been a front man, they sort of put them in a little box over and say, well, you, you should be doing this. You know, you shouldn't be doing that, you know. Um, but I just figured, well, I've done so many things in my career and in my life outside of the music business that I think, well, why not have a go at doing country music and why not be a lead singer? I mean, like, you know, you've got to work it out as you go along from when you're a baby to when you're older as a person and all the way through life, you get challenges and you get opportunities. And sometimes when those doors open, you say to yourself, maybe I should go through that door. And there's other times you look at the door and you go, I'm definitely not going to go through that door. <laughs> and that's right and that's up yeah. to you to make those decisions as an adult and one of the great things i i think about living in the kind of societies that we're fortunate you and i to live in is we have choices i think you've um 
really done a great job. I mean, uh, you've, you've got the incredible skill of being a great songwriter and you had, uh, you know, Come Midnight, uh, Run Baby Run, and and, and you've, you've been able to also be uh, embraced by the, the country fans as well. I mean, they, they can pick a fake pretty well. That's the one thing that uh, you know you're not because uh, they have completely embraced you. I, I saw you in two different country shows and uh, you also you've done numerous shows in, in Tamworth as part of the festival as well. And um, that isn't easy. I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not easy. But then again, you know what, Becco, I don't think anything that's really worthwhile in life is very, very easy. My father passed away, Dennis, and obviously that's Tim and John and my sister Alison's father too. But I can remember something that one of his old mates said at my dad's funeral he admired about my father was he would never give up on trying to improve himself. And uh, congratulations to yeah. you. I, I think you've done a great job. And, uh, you know, the, you had the EP out first just to test the waters. And then finally we're able to release the, the self-titled album after a few delays with COVID and lockdowns and everything. And it, it's been so good hanging out with you on this podcast you know andrew you're a, you're a great bloke and and i hope you and melina are doing well as well and uh you know we can't wait to see you on tour hopefully very soon yeah and no, i becco thank you so much for talking to me and taking the time i really appreciate the, the, the kind words you just said then and and um you know I, I t- all i can leave you with is to say that i'm getting better as a front man if i make a mistake i don't act like i did <laughs> i just move on you know and, and <laughs> At first, I'd really beat myself up about it, but I think now I'm beginning to live with my 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 human frailty on stage, and, and actually, I can live with myself at the moment. So yeah, I'm good. Thank you. But yeah, have a great Christmas, and can't wait to catch up soon. All the best to you and your family, and we'll catch up soon. Well, there we go, Andrew Farris. What an absolute legend. I mean, such a humble guy. I mean, you can see why he's done so well to move from being in one of the world's biggest rock bands to being a humble country music singer and also how you know we all define people as either rock singers or rock artists or country artists but he said you know you don't have to put people in a box you can actually uh, have new challenges you can move on and try new things and that's what keeps him hungry and that was just amazing and also just hearing about the songwriting within in excess and how he and michael complimented each other that was uh, a great way to start off the writer thank you so much for hearing the first episode make sure you follow it whether you have it on uh, apple or whether it's spotify or google you can subscribe to it so it adds right to your app every single week when we put out a new episode and of course uh, you can find the rider pod on instagram as well another rep is coming in less than a week catch you then This is The Rider with Beckham.